0: From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCauer here at GreenBiz Headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, what comes after 100% clean energy? Arnold Schwarzenegger on messaging the climate crisis, the fight to define regenerative agriculture. And what carbon removal can learn from Burning Man? What are we smoking? This week on 350. It's April 26, 2019. Welcome to this week's Earth Week edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from across the United States in New Jersey is GreenBiz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Happy Earth Day week, whatever, Cl- Heather?
1: Yeah, happy Earth something. <laughs> I think every day is Earth Day for us, we've said before. Um, I have a completely rhetorical question for you, actually. Shoot. Since you're, you're talking about smoking things. Have you Uh-oh. ever noticed that whenever you look up regenerative agriculture photographs, like if you're trying to find a photo for a story, that they pop up marijuana plants I I don't know if you've noticed this, but every time I do searches, that's what shows up.
0: (laughs) Well, (laughs) I I haven't noticed that, but I'm not surprised. And here's why. Uh, A lot of regenerative ag, uh, well, some of it's in the field. And the stuff that we're going to talk about in a little bit is more about in the open farming field. But a lot of it also has to do with indoor ag, uh, the ability to grow Uh, produce and and flowers and other things at scale in warehouses and uh, greenhouses and and other things and most of that technology the hydroponics really was developed in the cannabis trade Um, it was funny you used to go into I'm told into a hydroponics store and talk to the salesperson there and they would say wink wink how are your tomatoes and now it's how are your tomatoes, (laughs) you know, and because, you know, people are growing things. So a lot of this technology really did um, come from that industry. So I guess I'm not surprised that that those uh, pretty green leaves show up when you do that research.
1: Pretty green leaves. Yep. Yep. Indeed. So how are you this week?
0: Uh, Well, you know, uh, around and about and not traveling, uh, but getting ready for the next seven, eight weeks of just traveling and being crazed. I know you're coming out here next week for a bunch of team meetings and uh, our uh, day of uh, volunteer day, all hands volunteer day, working at City Slicker Farms here in West Oakland. That'll be fun. Uh, But just a lot going on. You know, we did have Earth Day this week, and I wrote that piece about um, Happy Earth Day, or as we at Green Biz call it, Monday. (laughs) In other words, it's just another day at the office, and it was sort of fun chronicling what everybody, all 30 of us in the company, do on a typical day because a lot of people ask us that. So that was fun. And um, other than that, it's just another day, week in the office.
1: Well, it is spring here and spring has sprung. My tulips are flowering and the deer haven't eaten them yet, so I'm happy.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, let's keep the deer. I don't know how to to think about that, but um, I'm sure that Everything that's dear to you will get eaten by the deer. (laughs) Um, Let's get out of this and move right on.
1: Get to the week in review.
0: Great. Okay. Well, let's move on from that little mess and talk about shipping. Um, There's a really interesting story from Meg Wilcox about Maersk and uh, charting a course towards uh, sustainable shipping and and new kinds of fuels.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they're the. Uh, I want to just point out that they are the only shipping company so far to have sort of a, a massive carbon neutral commitment. Um, that's notable because they are, I believe, the world's largest. Last time I checked. Um, and the 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 strategy that they're employing right now is to pilot biofuels. So we've talked in the past about the fact that. It will be a long time, likely, before we see a completely electrified airplane or ship, cargo ship. And so they're uh, charting a course, if you will, towards carbon neutrality by beginning to test biofuels. And so the the story that uh, one of our wonderful contributors, Meg Wilcox, wrote this week has to do with uh, a pilot that they're doing with the uh, United Nations International Maritime Organization. Um, they've got some people from there involved in, in helping them think it through, um, and you know, they're they're. This is a first little, if you will, uh, I can't say step because you you can't step on the ocean, but but they're inching towards uh, towards this with with a pilot. Um, I can't remember where it is. I'm just actually trying to. Oh, in Rotterdam, it's a specific route, but it is a large vessel from Rotterdam to Shanghai. So they're they're testing a fuel blend of 20 percent biofuel and they uh this particular fuel is made from waste cooking
0: oil let's call it a toe in the water um <gasps> but uh, oh, yeah this good is
1: for you joel well you know <laughs> that was uh,
0: that was easy um so yeah this is really interesting and it is as you said uh, a parallel to the aviation industry which is similarly trying to figure out how to come up with cleaner fuels um and uh similarly uh um, hopefully not dipping its toe in the water, but uh, trying to uh, get some, uh, some lift on, uh, on fuels, uh, starting pro- more like 5%. I know United Airlines, we've talked with them before about that and use, creating uh, biofuels from municipal solid waste, which is uh, another great thing. So there's a lot of potential here, um, but getting to 100% biofuels on either ships or planes is going to take a long time and there's lots of potential problems with that that have to be overcome or at least barriers. So uh, it's interesting. And, and Meg uh, spoke with James Mitchell, the maritime finance lead at the Rocky Mountain Institute to talk about what it will take to get to zero carbon vessels uh, on the water. And uh, by 2030, although um, uh, Mayor's uh, plans to—they've uh, committed to be carbon neutral by 2050. So, anyway, lots more to come mm-hmm. in in that. Um,
1: yeah, and actually, I just want to—I'm going to step on you for a second and just say that the one thing that I—I I, I feel like we're going to pledge to watch out of this is you, you mentioned before. It's not just biofuels. Um, I know that the the RMI folks are very closely watching hydrogen uh, fuel. Hmm oxygen options so i just wanted to mention that because i think that's one of one of these i think that's one of those sleeper industries right um where there's a lot going on around that that we need to take a closer look at
0: right well whatever floats your boat uh, mm-hmm. so let's move over to two stories i want to talk about this week that have to do with carbon uh, one of them is a fun piece by our friend Susan Gladwin, who's a longtime uh, marketing and, and, and product strategy consultant and working uh, worked with Apple and works a lot with, with Autodesk. And she wrote a piece about COOP, which is a play on MOOP, M-O-O-P, which is a term that, as far as I know, originated at Burning Man. Um, MOOP is, uh, is what they call trash. It's an acronym for Matter out of place. In other words, nothing really is waste, it's just something that is in a place it shouldn't be. Uh, and uh, they, they call it a convenient way of referring to anything that's not originally on the land on which our event takes place. So she took that concept and created coop carbon out of place. So carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases aren't inherently bad, just like the, the things so called trash, but it can be obviously problematic when it accumulates in the upper atmosphere where it traps heat and all of that or in the ocean where it causes acidification. And so um, coop is uh, is a concept of how to think. It's really a nice reframing, which is why I really like this piece, because we're you know one of the important things we need to do in this field is reframe a lot of things from from guilt or or terror or or sacrifice into opportunity. And carbon out of place does that nicely.
1: Yeah, it really does. And I, because as, as you know, when, when we do write about carbon capture and sequestration and this bad, you know, people do call it bad. And, and we, as you know, we need it to live. And so I love her reframing of this. It really actually helped me. It was like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. So now I can use it to talk to the people Um, that criticize some of our coverage. (laughs) So anyway, maybe that's why. I like this one because it's self-interested appreciation.
0: Well, the people who criticize our coverage on this, I mean, maybe they have legitimate gripes with our coverage. I don't know about that. But if they're just not that excited about uh, or in favor of us covering carbon as a good thing that's in the wrong place or or carbon that needs uh, to be repatriated uh, in the soil... Uh, that's another matter altogether. And that brings up our third story, which is the fight to define regenerative agriculture by Jim Giles, our uh, analyst uh, at at Verge Carbon, Verge Carbon being the the new conference within the larger Verge event that we're gonna be launching uh, in in October in Oakland. Um, And as regenerative agriculture, Becomes more than just a meme, but a but an industry. Uh, the the question is, well, what does it mean, and how do you define it? And there's a lot of big companies, General Mills, that Ben and Jerry's, part of Unilever, are are, are two examples uh, that are you know digging in, if you will, to uh, regener- regenerative ag as a way to not only heal the soil uh, and increase crop production, but also sequester carbon in the in the soil which is where it, it it a lot of it has lived and a lot of it has escaped thereby weakening the soil that we need to grow things and so this is another one where we're you know part of this reframing is how do you not only frame it but actually define it and ultimately certify it and the reason you need to certify it is that uh it, first of all anyone can claim anything is regen- regenerative if there's no Definition and and to the extent that becomes a marketing term, we need some rigor around that. But equally, or perhaps more important, is that if we get to a price on carbon, and you can start to see if a farmer does A, B, and C to you know on their field, takes these specific steps in these specific ways, they can predict that they will save or sequester. Uh, so many tons of, of carbon that has a dollar amount. Anytime you get to dollars or euros or anything else, we need to have some pretty good definitions behind it.
1: Yeah. yeah. The tension, I think, as, as I'm reading it, is, is partly to do with uh, who wants to be regenerative, right? And many of this, the same organizations that are making the commitment to be organic uh, to To have organic farms are also talking about regenerative agriculture, and that's natural. It, some one in many ways, some are you know, it's an extension of each other. And so the approaches that that are emerging that um, Jim talks about in his piece are one uh, that does look to extend the existing organic certification that's being uh, promulgated by the Regenerative Organic Alliance, which is uh, chaired also by Rodale, so a well-known organization out there um talking about how how we practices i mean this one is like okay you do these things and you can be uh you know certified as a regenerative uh, agricultural operation the second approach a sort of counter approach that's emerging though is to actually look at the soil so instead of saying okay you did these things therefore you are regenerative to actually you know read the soil and and, and talk about how healthy it is and, and look at how healthy it is so that's um a approach that's being uh, advocated by the Carbon Underground and the Sabre Institute, so we'll have to watch this closely. Um, I, I, I've, I love the framing of this as well. It's, uh, it's wonderful. We, we love these debates because they make progress happen, I believe, more quickly. Sometimes they can delay things, but we have to have these healthy discussions in order to push things forward. California's long history of fighting climate change isn't a partisan success story. The state's former governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, reached far across the aisle to tackle issues of pollution during his time in office. By reframing the debate as a clear and present problem to human health and a matter of social justice rather than a vague threat of the future, Schwarzenegger was able to instill a sense of urgency and build support. Indeed, his work was instrumental in putting the state on track to become a leader on climate issues while growing its powerful economy. What could today's policymakers learn from the former governor, bodybuilder, and action film star? Schwarzenegger talks about why he's still a Reagan and Roosevelt Republican and why both parties must learn how to compromise. All this during an exclusive interview with the podcast Political Climate. The program is made possible with the support of the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation. I got on the phone with one of the show's co hosts Julia Piper, a contributing editor to Green Tech Media. I started by asking her to explain the mission of the Political Climate podcast.
2: So Political Climate is a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America. And we launched it because we felt like there wasn't a space for Democrats and Republicans to come together and have a civilized dialogue on climate and energy issues. It's hard in today's polarized world to have these conversations. Even we find it hard. We get pushback from both sides for even engaging with one another. But we really felt like this was the time to do a show like this. To create cover for Republicans to engage on this, know that there was an audience excited to hear from them, and to present some new information perhaps for Democrats to think about maybe Republicans are willing to engage on energy and climate. So that was the experiment we launched. It stemmed from a frustration, I think, following the 2016 election, me personally being a journalist, just seeing people get further apart in their information that they gather and that they listen to. And so, again, I call it an experiment because it truly is. And so far, we're really lucky to have had some great guests and some great supporters. And we're excited to see where we can go with this. Right now, this is a great way to start season two, I believe it is, correct? Yes, season two. We launched it last yeah. year as a bi-weekly episode, as a bi-weekly show. And now we are excited to be weekly.
3: Great. Well, I
2: love this interview, Um,
3: and one of the things that really struck me as I was listening to the conversation was Schwarzenegger's focus on how to message climate activism. So walk us through his decision to key in on pollution versus the sort of ethereal concept of global warming.
2: Yeah, he feels really strongly about this. The former governor found during his tenure that when they framed climate issues in context of local pollution uh it just landed so much better there was a specific campaign he talks about around proposition 23 in california where talking about climate did not rally the public but when they showed this image of a small child struggling with asthma that image just landed and they got a bunch of public support they mobilized people and were able to actually see some policy outcomes as a result so he really feels like politicians today need to stop talking about decades-in-the-future events related to climate change and start talking about the pollution impacts that are happening to people today in their communities.
4: I have for years told environmentalists they have to get off this just talking about climate change or global warming and all this stuff. It does not work. We learned the hard way. We were struggling all the way to the end, but then we learned that the way to communicate to people is of what's going on today, Today. People are dying because of pollution. Rather than in 20 years from now, if you continue this way, it's going to be the end of the world. You know, like you hear some of these politicians talk about. In 10 years, it's the end. It's inner- irreversible. It's nonsense. Dialogue.
3: Another thing that really struck me from from my listen of the interview was his concern about gerrymandering. So I'm just curious, when you're from your takeaway, why should this issue be something that that advocates of addressing climate change watch far more closely than maybe they are?
2: Yeah, the issue of gerrymandering relates to climate in the sense that it it generally leads to more extreme candidates being selected and advancing into the general elections. And that's something that the governor Schwarzenegger really feels strongly about, that there needs to be redistricting reform so that both parties can have candidates that are a little more open to compromise, but a little more are a little closer to the center. So he actually has a gerrymandering initiative that is being led out of the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. And I think it really does relate to climate change. If there are candidates that are willing to compromise, willing to come together, there is a chance that climate policy could pass at the federal level. And so here's how the governor actually thinks about that issue.
4: No one in Washington right now can really compromise, except on some Mickey Mouse little issues, right? But on big issues, they can't compromise because they're afraid that if they do compromise, they go back home and they lose their job. And so this is why redistricting reform and getting rid of the fixed uh, political system of gerrymandering, uh, I mean, that has to change. And it's a 200-year-old scam that I'm just... I mean, really shocked about the fact that no one really fought it and no one really stood up to both of the parties and says, stop it. Enough is enough. We got to start representing the people and not just the party.
3: One more final question for you, Julia. What was your biggest revelation from the interview and why does the governator still work on climate issues?
2: Yeah, I think for me as a communicator, it was so interesting to hear his backstory on bodybuilding and how Schwarzenegger was able to change the way the public thought about bodybuilding, changing it from a very niche sport, something that people thought was wussy uh, or just wasn't very popular at all. And by changing a few terms and rebranding it, it took off and is now the foundation of many sports and athletics. And Thinking about climate change, I do feel like there's a common takeaway there. What are the messages that we can put out into the world that enable climate change to land with the mainstream as an issue that they should care about? It's something we talk about in upcoming episodes of Political Climate, so I hope people will check those out. It's an issue that I've just personally been very fascinated with, and I think Schwarzenegger had some great thoughts there. As for why he's involved with climate, I think he would also connect that back to bodybuilding and say that you know, once you're an athlete and you care so much about the health of your body, how can you not care about the health of the planet? And so here's actually what he said on that in his own words.
4: If you would have asked me 50 years ago, would I ever be going out there and campaigning for the environment, I would have said no. Uh, but when I ran for governor and I was sitting there as governor after I won, and I learned from the scientists and from really smart people uh, of what's happening with the environment. I felt that now I'm in a position to have power to do something about it. And uh, of course, I knew Republicans were not that excited over it. Um, and uh, so I worked more with the Democrats on this particular issue, and on other issues, I worked with Republicans more, Uh, but in this particular issue, you know, we started negotiating and talking about it, and what can we do, so we started with the green building initiative, and we started with the renewable energy to get more renewable energy, and to make a commitment to reduce greenhouse gases, and on and on and on, we did all kinds of things, and I just saw the effect it has, how you can really create change, and how, Proud I was of the California, of the legislators, and of the people because people voted for a lot of those issues. People helped us to protect those environmental laws uh, when when the oil companies and the coal companies came up with Proposition 23 and where they wanted to take it out, the California people went with us. So, California people were great partners. So, I got very passionate. And you know, there's another side of it uh, besides that we need change uh, and we need to protect our future. And we need to make it clean, but it's also when you are for that many decades involved in creating a healthy and strong body. Well, inevitably, you then also want to have your globe and your world to be clean and to be you know uh, uh, healthy also. So I think it goes hand in hand. And I have led a crusade in bodybuilding. And it was successful, so I feel like, okay, this is also one of those kind of uphill battles. I should get involved, and I'm going to go all out with it. Even after I'm finished as governor, I'm going to create the uh, USC Schwarzenegger Institute, and we're going to continue with those issues that I felt very passionate about. And this is one subject I'm very passionate about.
3: Julia, thanks so much for dropping by. I love uh, having fellow podcasters on our, uh, our Green Biz 350. So tell our listeners where they can find you and your co-host.
2: Yeah. Well, thanks so much for having me. Truly, Heather, I really appreciate it. You can find Political Climate pretty much anywhere you can get podcasts. And you can learn more about the show at politicalclimatepodcast.com. you.
0: One of the visitors to the Green Biz office this week is an old friend of ours, one of my favorite people, Sarah Shanley-Hope, the Executive Director of the Solutions Project. Uh, Sarah, it's so great to see you again.
5: So good to be here, Joel.
0: So uh, we need an update. First of all, it's been a number of years since we've talked you started this five years ago and it started really by three guys named mark mark ruffalo mark uh, jacobson and mark krappels uh, looking at how do you create a hundred percent renewable energy in the world and of course at the time it seemed laughable and now it's the thing so where do you go from here mm. i mean first i think it is important to say where we came
5: from um, history is important. And the laughable is true, that they were laughed out of even the greenest of rooms when they advanced their vision of 100% clean energy. And here we are. You know, I think New Mexico is the, the most recent state to make that um, pledge, that commitment to 100% clean energy. More than 100 cities, um, you know, this is happening um, Where we go next is really, you know, making sure uh, that this transition is something that benefits everyone. Um, as we think about uh, how to get to 100% clean energy, it's about job creation. It's about a full transition of our energy systems. It's about transit. It's about, um, you know, heating and cooling systems that are are renewable and sustainable. And so, Um, that is the next phase of work is about implementation.
0: So you've been talking about 100% commitment to justice. Could you explain what that is, 100% by whom, to whom, for what?
5: So how we got here to 100% clean energy happening, this big, bold vision actually becoming reality, is the Solutions Project and a number of other organizations and partners, you know, change the conditions within which that idea, that that five years ago laughable idea became the norm. And um, for the Solutions Project, we did that through investing in those organizations on the ground in really different communities, Buffalo, New York, um, Des Moines, Iowa, um, Florence, South Carolina, Miami, Florida, who are making this transition happen in ways that benefit you know, people's everyday lives. And then how do we tell those stories of transition and really amplify, um, the successes through our celebrity partnerships and media and storytelling. So, you know, as we think about this next phase, um, it's really, uh, looking to, to the leaders that are already around us. Um, gosh, three years ago, we had grassroots partners just imagining, um, what a community renewable project could look like and then you know through herding of cats in some cases and partnering with large utilities and others you know we can now point to more than a dozen um, of these ex- exact projects actually you know powering the lives of working communities low income communities communities of color um, and so I think it's really scaling and accelerating those changes.
0: So Part of that dynamic that you're talking about requires uh, thinking differently about investing and about media and about some of the other players that are influenced either with information or influenced with money, uh, the philanthropies and the investors, for example. How they play, and those are primarily not from marginalized communities and communities of color. How do you change that dynamic and get them, get those uh, media fields, um, and, and money fields more looking like the people who need the money and the funding.
5: Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. Our role and really all of us who have access to those traditional sources of power should be about moving money, media, and momentum behind those ground-up leaders who are making this transition happen. So how we've been able to um, inspire and and influence and attract whether it's foundations or corporate partnerships, um, like our, our our relationship with Patagonia, Seventh Generation, Marvel, is, you know, modeling the way. So show, don't tell. Um, and and it's, you know, you can't um deny the power um of when you're you're seeing um, for example, the the School 77 Community Solar Project in Buffalo, New York, uh, the ribbon cutting this summer, and meeting the the forty um, elderly tenants that are are moving in um, to the affordable housing units that are a part of that development. When you walk up on the roof and you see um, the the solar array and the um, you know, green roof that is going to be, you know, lowering the heating and cooling bill for for those residents, um, powering um, not just the building at School Seventy Seven, but the the surrounding community with affordable solar. It's it's irresistible. It it brings all of those. Um, Values that we do share around um, community self-determination, around healthy living, around um, affordability and like caring for each other. It brings it into, you know, a lived experience.
0: You mentioned Marvel and I kind of have to ask you, what's the role there of a basically a comic books company? Mm.
5: I mean... Right now, I think, you know, today's Earth Day for for many of us in the environmental sector and at the Solutions Project and probably way more um, uh, segments, audience segments around the world. Today is actually Endgame Day. It's the global premiere of of Avengers Endgame, which will release um, on Friday this week. And, you know, Marvel is the premier storyteller, I think, of our our era. I think, you know, I have a daughter who's 10 years old and J.K. Rowling is up there for sure. Um, And, you know, when you think of Black Panther, when you think of, you know, Captain Marvel out right now, when you think about the Avengers series, you think of this is the fight of our lives that's the tagline of, of the movie and you think about what we're up against when it, it comes to climate change and that it's going to take all of us uh, as Naomi Klein says to change everything and Marvel is uh, gosh you know at the top of the list of really inspiring all of us to see ourselves in this this great battle.
0: Well, it's no question that we're going to need superheroes if we're going to save ourselves and everybody else in the planet, uh, get this done. And so it's great that Mark Bruffalo is a part of that mix, and you, of course, as well. Sarah Shanley Hope is executive director of the Solutions Project. You could check it out at thesolutionsproject.org. Sarah, thanks so much for stopping by.
5: Thank you, Joel.
0: And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbizcom 350 to find out more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're there, check out our other podcasts, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from Greenbiz Events. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. And don't forget to subscribe to one or more of our five weekly e-newsletters. Heather's Verge Weekly comes out on Wednesdays, and my Green Buzz newsletter is fresh every Monday morning. And check out the other three on transportation and mobility, clean energy, and the circular economy. Heather and I will be back next week. Heather will be here in Oakland. Till next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.